This podcast is brought to you by DC Music Publishing. Find out more at dcmusicpublishing.co.uk. Hello, and thank you very much for listening to the Behind the Music Business podcast. My name is Danny Champion. Uh, I run a company called DC Music Publishing. And this is my little independent music business podcast that I've been running since 2018, where I talk to a whole range of people in the music business about their jobs in the music business, about what their jobs are, about how they got to where they are, about their motivations. Um, It is designed to give those who are interested in the music business as a career option uh, a bit of insight into the various roles that there are and also those of you who are artists or performers or songwriters out there a bit of insight into the kind of people that you should be looking to reach out to. Uh, This week's episode is with Vikram Goody. He is a entrepreneur, he is a business owner, he is a sync agent, he is a music producer, he is a uh, education provider He's a whole range of things. Uh, It was a really interesting conversation about how he got into the music business, about his Indian background and heritage and what that meant when you're looking into the creative industries as a career. Uh, We talked about education now that he is uh, providing music production education as well and his relationship with that going to university and being in education as well as providing it. Uh, We talked about his career in the world of synchronisation and music production and production music and all those areas uh, that his company's Elephant Music and Split Music are kind of really focusing on. And of course, we talked about his brewery that he set up a few years back, Mammoth Beer. Um, So yes, it was a really interesting conversation. He's got loads to talk about. I could probably have talked to him for another couple of hours, but it was a difficult process of pinning him down. Uh, When you are someone with that many companies, uh, your free time is sparse. So anyway, I'm going to be quiet now. So here is my conversation with Vikram Goody from Elephant Music, Split Music Publishing, Protégé and Mammoth Beer. you sir i'm okay i'm a bit also a bit mental i've got like a bit annoyed um i've been booked six hours of meetings today and like i normally only try and do three hours uh, and some at some house it's six and i'm just like so when am i gonna eat and when am i gonna do my actual work because a lot of these meetings are like interviews and stuff and i'm like i actually have work to do and like albums to produce and briefs (laughs) You know, I'm like, I'm not going to be able to do anything if you book six hours of meetings for me. <laughs> is, that, is that six hours of meetings on Zoom as well? Yeah, on Zoom. I, if it was in real life, I, I could handle it because the break would be getting there, you know? Yeah. 
Um, but Zoom is just, oh, okay, it gets draining. My attention span after midday just like deteriorates completely. And like, I can do Zoom before midday. And then after midday, I'm like, I need to do some like calm work, you know, focused yeah. work. No, I'm, I'm 100% with you on that. The, the Zoom thing, I've, I've seen the positives in it, i.e. being able to connect with people like yourself when you're not in London or mm. even when you're not in the same country, being mm. able to do the whole working from home, especially when you've got kids, like yes. you know, we both do and things like that. But at the same time, yes, I have to physically go, I'm going to take an hour in the middle of the day and I'm going to go for a walk. Yes. And I'm not going to stare at a screen. I'm not going to have my lunch at my desk. I'm not mm -hmm. going to stare at my phone and all of that stuff because, because yeah, I mean, I, we, I did a year's worth of teaching mm. over Zoom and it wasn't like teaching designed over Zoom. It was teaching that was forced onto Zoom. And mm. that was, yeah, there was a few days where you go, this timetable was not designed for it to be online. <laughs> exactly. My, my first question is, how the hell did you get into the music industry considering you did chemical engineering at university? Huh. Well, I mean, I'm a big believer that if you really, really want to do something, it's irrelevant what you study and, and, and it's irrelevant where you're from or, um, you know, what country you live in. Like, if you're determined enough, you'll, you'll get into the path you, you're really passionate about. Yeah. And, and all the way through university, um, you know, I studied chemical engineering, just to be completely frank, because my parents pressured me to. Right. Um, you know, I'm from an Indian background and like when you mention the word music to, to you know, Indian parents, they shriek with horror. I mean, there could be nothing worse than doing a creative job um, in, the, in an Indian family. So, so does, does that, you know, from that, uh, does that stereotype still reign true? Uh, yeah, absolutely. In, in fact, I'm doing some work um, at the moment with some communities um, in my local area yeah. um, to help educate parents um, and, and stop this pattern repeating i'm literally speaking to a brilliant um young um, entrepreneur in the music industry right now um and and he runs a group of um brilliant djs in the area and and i was chatting to him and i said you know how old are you and he said oh, i'm 24 but i'm going back to uni and i was like why you moment the momentum's just starting um you know there's hype like you need to be putting more work in now and he's like my parents, like, they, they won't let me do it. I still live at home. And for me to be able to live at home, they, it comes with terms and conditions. And one of those terms and conditions is you have to go and do a proper degree. So he's, he's going to study physics. And, yeah, I mean, this is literally a conversation I had last week. So that stereotype does exist. Now, that being said, um, you know, I learned a lot from my engineering degree. Um, I learned about processes and... Um, in fact, thermodynamics, how to do many things at the same time simultaneously. Um, I think definitely the level of maths that it teaches you. You know, you do learn things about law in, in, yeah. in my degree too, copyright and contract law. Um, it, it, a lot of degrees, you know, the bigger degrees are very versatile and you can have transferable skills. Obviously, it's not creative at all. Um, how much did you learn I think about it helps yourself? Me with, uh, at well, 
a lot actually I, I, I learned that I'm not wired for the academic system it, it's it frustrated me too much um, especially the traditional university academic system um, I just found that you can learn more by yourself um, and you shouldn't have to well in my opinion you shouldn't have to learn someone else's curriculum I think there's enough information and uh, courses and teachers out there right now where you can learn exactly what you think you need to learn in order to take the next few steps. Mm -hmm. um, I also realized I'm terrible at exams um, <laughs> and being terrible at exams doesn't necessarily mean that you're not good at the subject. 100%. Um, there's an art to exams. You know, I, I went to a school where people were just experts at, ex experts at exams. Now, now when I hire um, as, as a business owner, I completely ignore um, exam results and you know whether someone got a first or a second. It's irrelevant to me because I, I realise how little that makes any difference. I, I, I've said that because I've obviously been in the education system for six years now as a, as a lecturer um, mm -hmm. um, at, at assorted... Uh, universities in one in Bristol, one in Cardiff, and one in Manchester that I did mm -hmm. up until lockdown. Um, but yeah, it's that that age old question. I'm I'm very similar to you. I was awful at exams. I was very bad at that whole cram information in at the last minute and then regurgitate it in a in a two hour spell. I was much better at at taking on information, synthesizing it over over a longer period of time, and working it out practically you know the kind of the more vocational way of doing things and yeah absolutely and I'm you know I'm a fan of education I mean I run a school so I'm not saying that you know education and schools and learning is bad I just think that the traditional models need a reform and they need to get with they need to listen to what the students actually want to do because I guarantee 90% of the students don't want to do half of the things on the curriculum and probably won't use any of the skills it, so many of the courses are just so outdated um you know even in my engineering degree we were using books that were like from the 60s um and of course you know engineering maths and physics doesn't change but it made it very difficult and boring to be honest like yeah, yeah, yeah. simplify learning you can could have done it all on the computer for example and we could you can make it fun you can gamify it it doesn't have to be difficult how do you see um, education side of things from your from your son's perspective? Um, How old I don't is he put, now? He's nine. Uh, he's going to be ten in September. I, I really don't push him um, hard. I'm very lucky that he's a, he's good at school. You know, I've had no issues with him in terms of academically and, and behaviourally. Um, but I do push him. Um, into the areas where he's passionate and you know he's really good at drawing like ridiculously good cool. um, and so I know that if I make him draw he will then rebel and dislike drawing so I sort of tactically just put paper and pen around um, you know I got him I got him the oh, it's right, the apple pencil for the iPad which he loves now um, and I just let let him let him explore his creative side more than pushing him to do his times table you know i'm a big believer that you know when he's older i mean that's you know when he goes to uni that's only like eight or nine years um the job market would have changed so many jobs can be automated like so many jobs 
I mean, I think engineers are going to be obsolete soon because computers can calculate everything much better than any human. Um, and I think we're going to be in a situation where it's the creative mind that's the irreplaceable mind. So I'm always pushing him into trying to use his creativity because mm. it's, it's difficult for AI um, or machines to learn creativity. Yeah, 100%. I, I'm, I kind of see the same with my daughter, who's, what, eight this summer. And she's, she is not a school fan. She's, <laughs> really? she's bright as a button and she loves, she asks like a thousand questions, but she just doesn't, it does, the, the, the school system of doing things just does not sit with her way that she ingests information so yeah it's very much that finding that way has has all has your experiences across this influenced the way that you you know the school that you set up operates the the protege thing yes absolutely we set up protege with a blank canvas we we worked backwards and we just said what do we want to teach these people right we want them to be composers and we want them to be professional composers okay well Richard and I have said at the school, we're professional composers, um, producers and business owners. Um, and we broke down exactly what it is that, what knowledge it is that we have that we want to infuse um, with them, but also what's difficult. What, what did we learn by trial and error? That was the, that was the key thing. Mm -hmm. How do you avoid the errors that we made over our sort of last decade of working together? Um, and we didn't feel it necessary, and we still haven't, to put a lot of the traditional music school courses in there. For example, we don't do any music theory. Um, and partly because, uh, not Richard specifically, but a bunch of my composers don't have any music theory knowledge. Um, that doesn't mean you can't be a composer. Um, you know, m most of my favorite bands can't read music. Um, <laughs> and I don't think that should stop you. And I think sometimes, the academic system, say, for example, if you were to do a traditional music course and the first module was music theory, well, if you had music theory, you'd, you'd walk it, right? But if you didn't, you would start that course instantly feeling like you had imposter syndrome or it was uphill um, or it was something that wasn't designed for you. Mm -hmm. um, so we've, we've tried to take all the traditional stuff out, to be honest. Our, our course is very practical. Um, it's very much based on this is what you will encounter when you become a professional composer. Um, real life situations, real life issues, um, real life briefs, um, real life deadlines. You know, the truth is you don't have a month to write the track. Um, you probably got a week if at best. <laughs> um, saying it's an afternoon, isn't it? Yeah. And, and, and I think you need to learn how to write quickly. You're not really taught that. Um, at many schools, you taught you taught all the theory, but I feel the practical aspect is something you just have to learn in real life, and I don't think that's I don't think that's that's healthy because it it, it leads to burnout um, when you when you made that decision to go professional, and you know you do ten bits of custom work in a month, you stay up all night, and you're completely destroyed, and you're waiting, waiting, and you still don't win any of them. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> That can destroy you. It really can, and, I, and I've seen it in a lot of the composers that I work with. They just, they just quit. And I feel like if you prepare them, um, and if you get them into the habit of making music 
quickly and efficiently, but with no expectation. Um, and then having the mindset to know the realities of how often it is that <clears throat> your custom music will get placed. I feel like that can prepare you at least a little bit for when you do go out in the real world and start composing professionally. How many students do you have signed this, up to it? This year we have uh, 50. Okay. Um, it's probably our complete max capacity um, because, <clears throat> I mean, we have a call every Thursday um, and the call every Thursday is with everyone. In fact, there's so many people over so many time zones. We have to do two calls. We have to do one in the morning and then one in the afternoon for the Americans. But before each call, um, Richard, myself, um, and Guy Jones and, and some other internal producers, we feed back on all of their tracks, um, you know, with detailed notes. Um, so they get um, personal feedback from us, but then we walk through the general feedback on the call and the common mistakes that people have made in that week's brief. Mm -hmm. um, and we play music. Uh, you know, I think that's another thing that people don't do enough in music courses. Actually <laughs> listen, actively listen to the music and break down the good and the bad. And when there is some bad, offer solutions of how to fix it, that quick solutions of how to fix it. You said that you did, you, you went to university and did a course, not necessarily because it was, it was, it was something that you were kind of nudged into, but at the same time, your passion was music. And so was the music industry always kind of in the back of your mind as a place that you would see yourself? Did you know a lot about the music industry? You kind of walked into a, a sync job at Imagum, which isn't necessarily the kind of job that people would automatically know existed. How was your, how was, what was your knowledge base around, around the music business? Um, zero, actually. Um, I completely blacked that job into it, Margaret. Um, <laughs> I literally did what I just said I don't like doing, which is swat up the night before on, on um, you know, what, uh, literally, like, what is publishing. Um, the day before, I, I couldn't get my head around what master and publishing was for, for a while. Um, so, so the truth is, when I was at uni, you know, like, I was barely doing any studying at all. I mean, like, obviously, like, I got through my exams and I got my degree, but yeah, I was half in my degree and half in the music world. I wouldn't mm -hmm. say industry. I had a radio show. Um, I was DJing. Where, you know, I was going to gigs constantly. I had two bands. Um, I was playing guitar for people, doing session work. I was constantly making, listening to, uh, or meeting people in the music world. I mean, it was London. It was 2005. It was the, one of the coolest times to be around, you know, like um, it was like the Libertines and the horrors and you'd just go and bump into them in Camden Town. So I felt like just being in London was enough um, yeah. to make me feel as though I was, I belonged to that world. Um, and then after my degree, you know, I, I did a series of quite crap jobs for three or four years, um, which actually pushed me further into the music because I knew I didn't want to do a job that I didn't like. So every evening I was, you know, playing gigs or recording 
or going to see other bands or chatting to people. And it's through that actually that I met um, Arnold um, that, that worked at um, Boozy and Hawks then. And I think I spent about three or four months just <laughs> going to the pub and, and picking his brain on you know, what it was he did and um, what publishing was and ma what master was and what sync was and how it worked. And it, it went from, I just want a job in music um, and this bloke might be able to get me into, oh, this area of the music industry sounds amazing. Um, this sounds like, A, this could be the, the future of, of the music industry or at least the publishing industry. Um, and also just so complex and fascinating. Um, I definitely think that, you know, I'm attracted to things that are just quite complicated mm -hmm. um, and difficult. You know, I like a big challenge and I think Boozy and Hawks, especially, I think classical publishing, especially because of all the extra bits of information you need to know about copyright. You know, for example, uh, war extensions on, um, on certain composers and, um, you know, co-publishing and co-writes and um, versions and, you know, different masters and grand rights. It's kind of the most complicated publishing situation you can get yourself into. Mm -hmm. um, and for some reason I was attracted to that. So when Arnold told me about, you know, what he did for a living, I just wanted to get my foot in the door. I, I knew that I wasn't going to be there forever because, you know, I'm not a classical publishing person, but I knew it would be a foot in the door. And eventually I wanted to go and work in commercial music. You know, that's uh, I really, I wanted to work in indie music because that was my scene at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and I was really grateful that, and, and lucky that Boozy and Hawks got bought out by Amargam. So, you know, I sort of went from one day just pitching Rachmaninoff and Shostakovich to, oh my God, I can now pitch MIA and Daft Punk. Yeah. Um, literally overnight. So, that's what kept me there for so long. Otherwise, I think I would have just um, moved on to, a, to an indie. What sort of company were Imarkham like? Brilliant. I mean, very traditional. You know, in, you know, I can look back at that time and, and see that they're an old company, um, you know, with a very traditional music publishing model um, that you probably don't see much of nowadays. And by that, I mean, you know, they publish sheet music. That's, that's, that's old school. Um, they have an editorial department. They, they sell and edit sheet music for schools. Uh, they have different royalty departments that would just not exist in uh, a pop music publishing world. Um, and it was big. It was a large company. So I was really lucky to see an example of how a large company operates. Mm -hmm. um, and I was really lucky that my boss at the time, uh, Tash, Natasha Baldwin, um, sort of believed in this um, kind of autonomous um, modular system for all the sync team whereby we did a bit of everything you know it wasn't just that we got to do the fun stuff like go to gigs and and pitch music we we took care of the process from start to finish so okay we would go out and find the clients in the first place or if not find the clients service the clients so so do the briefs and then if, if there was a bite on something, try and provide the stems and, uh, you know, the actual nitty gritty production part, we would be in charge of the quoting too. Obviously we'd have to get approval on what we quoted. Mm -hmm. um, and then once the, um, once the sync happened, we would actually do the licensing and the invoicing as well. So 
Okay. Uh, obviously, and obviously, we ran the licensing through our business defa- business affairs department, but we knew what was going on. We knew what all the clauses were. If if, if someone wanted to remove or change a clause, it would be me that was doing it. Right. Um, and as a result, that prepared me perfectly to start my own company. One hundred percent. Because I well, firstly, I realised you don't need to be an expert in everything. You know, you just need to know how it works. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you do need an expert, you can just hire an expert. Um, or you can just pull in a freelancer to do bits of work for you. So I'm very grateful that, um, and, and I, I do the same now as a boss in my company. Um, I want everyone to know every corner of, of the business. Um, I don't necessarily want them to do the work. You know, I don't want my creatives to do the licensing but I want them to understand what a license is. I think you just become a better rounded individual if you know every department. I think it's, it's an interesting one because obviously Imagum doesn't exist anymore. It's now Concord. So you're mm. kind of watching industry consolidation and the kind of all the plates shifting around again. And it's really interesting knowing how different some of those larger businesses with larger catalogs, how they operate. Because I think from my time when I was at Sony, it sounds very similar to what Imagen was like, that you had basically someone that looked after an area of the process rather than, so they looked after advertising or television, but it was the whole process within that area. So you would take, you would go from pitching and marketing all the way through to invoicing for the advertising industry and that would be your thing but whereas someone like universal it's very much separated by this is the creative team and this is the administrative team so it's it's really interesting kind of seeing how different businesses with different ideals have kind of have come to the have come to different conclusions to provide the same services yeah, and I don't think there's a right answer. I really think it's about how well managed the, the process is, um, whether you separate it into different types of media, whether you separate it into creative and, and paperwork. It doesn't really matter because it's really about servicing the clients. And the way I always look at it is you work backwards from what the client wants. And speed and accuracy are the two things they really want. Of course, creativity and you know pitching. But a company like Universal and Sony would probably mainly be doing, you know, I'd probably say 80% licensing um, because, you know, the phone's just ringing it um, when you own (laughs) big chunks of the music industry. Um, And then the 20% creative, it's still going to be overwhelming because, you know, uh, I I know this from a catalog nowhere near as big as uh, Sony. It's really difficult to search through 150,000 tracks um, when you've got a a pretty vague brief um yep. you know you get some, sometimes you hope for the mo- most specific brief imaginable just so you can rule out the fact that you have any tracks um <laughs> when it's when it's vague you know it, you really have to, it, you need help you can't do that yourself you have to spread it amongst the team um and i think it helps when your creative team also specializes in uh, certain areas of the catalog um so you know i was very much a specialist at the end, by the end uh, in the classical catalogue, um, but also the very, very brand new. Um, so the things that were in pre-release stages or hadn't, hadn't quite come out right. yet. And there were people that were 
specialists in the heritage catalogue that I couldn't quite get my head around, you know, that was there from the Romba days before um, Imagen became Imagen. Mm-hmm. And there'll be people that were really good at uh, 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 film scores and people that were really good at, you know, other things. And when a brief came in, I think the, re- the really important thing is to spread the work and to, to use a bunch of minds on it. Um, but yeah, I don't think there's really one system that works for everyone. I think it's really dependent on the size of your catalogue. 100%. And so, so, so what was the dynamic, the team dynamic like? You said that you kind of, you know, many heads got involved. It was never like, oh, this is my project, get away from it. It's very much like, let's all get involved in this. Yeah, I think sometimes, I think like, it depends on how busy everyone is, uh, obviously, as well. Um, you know, we were, there were times when we were just too busy to even send the brief around because you were getting three or four or five briefs a day plus your meetings, plus internal meetings, you know, so you would, I would often reach out to the team if I was out of the office um, and a brief came in and I had two hours to do it and there's no way I'd even be back in time. That would be when I reached out to the team. Um, mm-hmm. But but to be honest, it was very collaborative. Um, there was never kind of, this is mine, hands off. It was, oh, cool, this project's come in. Have you got any ideas? Or, oh, cool, this project's come in. I don't think this is for us. Um, and then a sort of quick group chat about it and then, and then move on. Um, and I think that's what we miss now in this sort of remote working universe that we find ourselves in. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't just quickly bounce ideas off each other unless you're like on Zoom all day, which no one wants to do. Um, and I think a lot of the creative juice you know is lost over whatsapp or over chat or slack or whatever you use um and i'm I'm learning this you know just now to be honest like how i wouldn't say toxic but borderline toxic it can be to try and chat or talk about creative over chat i just don't think it's ever gonna work as well as at least a phone call um or a zoom Why did you leave? Good question. Um, One of the main reasons I left was I just wanted to travel. Um, And the sort of summer before I left, I'd been to New York and I'd been to LA uh, as a holiday. And I really fell in love with LA and I just felt like I needed to be there. Uh, It didn't really, I didn't really think it through that well, to be honest, in hindsight. But I just thought it would be a really good idea if I, just stopped working for a bit. I think, I think that was my priority. Just, it was four and a bit years of just nonstop. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's an intense job. It really, really is. And I felt I was either getting to the burnout stage or I just needed a break. I was even considering a break and then going back to the same job or going back to a similar job. Right. Um, but the idea was to just take some time off and, and think about what, what my next move was. Mm-hmm. Um, and this idea of elephant music had been brewing um, in the background for some time. And I just knew I didn't have the time to commit to it and have a full time job. So I made a pr- probably the biggest decision of my whole life, actually, to just hand in my resignation. And also I felt like 
I was leaving at the top, if that made sense. I felt like I didn't want to get, I didn't want to get booted out of the company. And <laughs> I didn't want to get made redundant because there was a lot of talk about Imago and getting bought. And, you know, there was a lot of uncertainty at the time. It, mm-hmm. it was a time where there was a, a lot of acquisitions. I was going to say um, that was kind of, there were, I think there was a lot of people at a lot of companies that always had that cloud hanging over them kind of going when, when are we going to get bought and when am i when's my job not going to necessarily be here anymore exactly and and i i just didn't like that uncertainty i'd rather made i it would i would it came better from me the decision yeah. came better from me you know i i was in control of that decision and it was it was a fantastic we had a leaving do and you know I'm still friends with everyone there and, and I left on really good terms. And that's always how I want to leave relationships, you know, mm-hmm. in a happy place for everyone. Yeah. Um, and then when I did leave, um, you know, I just, the first thing I did was just spend a couple of months doing nothing and um, focusing on, on, one, on music. Uh, you know, music is my passion and it, and it always will be but I had so little time working for a big company that I, ne- I didn't have time to write. I didn't have time to even listen to music. Um, you're, you know, you have a pile of CDs. Well, back in the day, you had a pile of CDs yeah, you had to yeah. get through just for work. Um, so just to have that space to, to listen to music again, to fall in love with music again, uh, and then decide on what it is that I wanted to do next. You've got a bit of an empire that you've that you've built since what 2014. Was it always? Was that the was that the plan? You got, or was that kind of a gradually? You, you you know you started Elephant Music and then that went. Well, maybe we should we should attach a a publishing company and then oh maybe we should start brewing our own beer. <laughs> um, definitely wasn't the plan. Um, you know, looking back, I probably. I wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't change a thing, but I probably would have done it all in a different way where it didn't all overlap. And, you know, I'm in a situation now where I've got like six companies. Um, it's, it's always been about following my passion. Mm-hmm. Um, and also it's all about the, the partners that I've worked with, you know, and how easy I find it to work with certain partners. Um, I mean, Pete, Pete that I started split music with, you know, that's been going for about six or seven years now. Um, and it, it started because we got on, you know, and we just thought we should do something together. That was, that was the initial chat. We didn't even know what it was. Um, you know, the more beers we drank and, and the longer the chats got, <laughs> it, it, it was our passion for experimental commercial music um, that was the sort of overlap um, and also, you know, my sync contacts and Pete's sync contacts combined mm-hmm. with our publishing um, experience. You know, Pete had a publishing company already. I worked at a publishing company. Um, it just seemed like a really nice fit. Plus, you know, having, you know, Elephant is still my, you know, my number one priority. And, and it's, it's also still my passion, but I, I work best with 
commercial acts. You know, I, I like working with commercial acts and I like producing commercial acts and I like the whole process of putting music out and going to see music live and, um, and the artwork and, and all the intricacies involved with commercial music. Yeah. So, and especially weird commercial music, you know, that's, that's always going to be my passion. So split music kind of started out as a sort of a concept. Um, we suddenly started signing bands and, and it got very big, very quick. You know, <clears throat> there was 10 people at one stage uh, in, in like 2016. Um, and, and Split's a really good example of a, co a company where Pete and I both wanted to keep it going, but realized we just were making it too complicated. Um, you know, we kind of, we pared it back down now to what it originally was, okay. which was just the, the two of us um, signing really cool music and just working with people that we like. Um, at one stage, it was just this gigantic publishing catalog um, which comes with all of its uh, pros and cons. Pros, obviously you make more revenue because you've got more acts and mm -hmm. cons because so much can go wrong in publishing. You know, there's so many people involved, um, you know, with the band managers and then you've got sync and then you've got the admin and you've got statements that we kind of, it got to a stage where it wasn't fun anymore. You know, it got to a stage where we were just managing people. Um, I, which is something that I, I, I launched my own publishing company in October of last year, and it's and I'm specifically keeping it as just me doing it at the moment because I kind of want you know it, it's a it's a learning experience for me as much as it is anything else. So yeah, I'm, I'm trying to you know I'm still kind of going well. How does this work? Is this the best way of doing it? Is this as efficient as it should be? So yeah, kind of growing really, really quickly whilst you're also having to answer all of those questions at the same time must have been, yeah, a fun one. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, there was some amazing, we, we had some amazing times at, uh, at Split in the heyday, you know, we put on these massive parties. We, we had a collaboration with the Whitechapel Art Gallery where we um, put on these experimental shows. We got some massive syncs, you know, we did like a quiet place, we worked at Adidas and amazing stuff happened and we just thought well we can still do all of that we don't need a team of 10 people we can outsource a lot of it we can trim down the catalog look i mean you'll probably go through this yourself um there's this um almost addiction at the beginning of starting a publishing company where you just want it to be as big as possible you reach out to everyone that you know and you try and sign bands and you try and sign labels and you know, you do, you, you sign things for sync, which is what we were doing a lot of. Um, but we were taking on labels and some of these labels had like a thousand songs. So we then have to register everything and all the <laughs> back end work. And, you know, that's like another, I had to hire someone else for that. And then we got to a stage of like, well, let's just trim it down to the people we like, the people that are useful. I think easy to work with is huge. Um, at the end of the day, you want your job to be easy. Mm -hmm. You want to avoid conflict. And I think that's one of the big resistance for one of the big reasons we trimmed a lot of the catalog was just because some artists or managers were just too high maintenance. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I think we're at a stage now, which is really stable. We're both enjoying it. Um, we're both getting paid, which is also nice um, because, you know, when you start, you, you put all your money into other people. 
um, you put all your money, all your income into growing and, and getting bigger. And by the end of it, you, you, sometimes you just end up resenting the job because you're not getting paid as much as, you know, sometimes you're not getting paid as much as your assistant. Um, <laughs> I was going to ask very quickly with, with the split music publishing stuff. Did you, did you launch it? Did you set it up? in very much a traditional manner. So you, you know, you had budgets, you had advances to, to give out to, to artists that you were signing, you were signing semi long-term agreements with retention no, absolutely. and all that sort of stuff, or was it, or were you no. trying to do things a little bit left of center? Absolutely the opposite of a traditional manner. And, and like this comes back down to, you know, similar to um, setting up, uh, elephant music and, and how protege has been set up always a blank canvas um and going against the traditional manner for, for many reasons so we set up split very transparently as a publishing company for sync um so the first question we asked our artists and, and writers was uh, do you want to do sync and if it was no we were like well this won't work so so that was the first the first thing number two we did short-term deals um, and the reason we did short-term deals was we didn't want to clutter the catalogue with unusable music or catalogue that was just sitting there where both parties didn't want it, mm -hmm. which happens a lot. So we were doing, you know, two to three year deals. Um, as a result, we weren't offering advances because it was, oh, and there was a one year break clause too. Um, so the pressure was all on us to go out and get things. And yep. if we didn't, um, we, we were actually quite happy to give the catalogue back because yeah. th there's a lot of maintenance with, uh, you know, publishing a, a, just one album. Mm -hmm. um, and if it's not working for anyone, we didn't want that burden either. So we, would, we just gave a lot of the catalogue back. We're still giving catalogue back um, if we think someone else can do a better job. Um, and also the other thing was we signed album by album. So we didn't sign writers exclusively. We right. just signed... Okay bits of catalogue that we thought would be useful for us. Yeah. So it's kind of, I guess, taking a pseudo production music idea and, 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 and kind of incorporating that into working with commercial artists. Yeah. It would because say, it would say of the, more the focus on sync. Yeah. It would be more like a sync agency with the focus on publishing. Mm -hmm. Um, and that model works and actually like, you know, most of those contracts have expired, um, and all the artists just want to keep renewing. So, um, th th those are the easy artists to work with, or we have a, you know, a really good creative and personal relationship. Um, and yeah, as you get older, you just want things to be easy. <laughs> and uh, as, as someone who is, is trying to answer this question at the moment when it comes to the, when it came to the back end stuff what were your solutions did you do it yourselves did you did you outsource did you find an administrator to help you with that side of things as quickly as possible or did you you know did you pay the money for a royalty uh, collection system in the back end and just chip away at it how what was your solution we did it ourselves for a long time. Uh, we had a royalties admin guy. Um, in hindsight, and, and then and then recently, since we've been, you know, trimming down the team, we've we found a third party mm -hmm. um, and done an admin deal. 
in hindsight, I wish we did that from the beginning because I think it was the, the royalty, the in-house royalty system that caused the most stress for everyone. Uh, it was the most labor intensive too. You know, it's a lot, it's so easy to make a mistake when you're just inputting things into Excel. Um, and also, you know, chasing it, chasing PRS and PPL, it's like a full-time job. Um, well, well, it was a full-time job, but then you have to manage the person doing it too. So in hindsight, I wish we, you know, we did all, we outsourced all the admin from the start and we would have focused more on just the creative, creative stuff. the signing artist and the fun stuff, to be honest. How have you found, I guess, chasing the third party? Uh, no, very good, actually. Um, we don't really chase. We um, still do all the sync ourselves. Yeah. Um, it's just royalty statements and um, a few bits and bobs that we just get accounted for every quarter. And I think because we're not putting as much time in as before, there's not like a desperation to get paid because we're sort of financially stable. Mm-hmm. So when when things do come through and statements do come through, we have time to, to digest them and, and, and to do the work now, instead of previously where our time was all spent managing the team. So it's what, it's, do you say six years old? Yeah, I think now? it's six or, I think it's, we're coming up to the seventh year actually. Okay. So would you say that you kind of you 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 found the the perfect way of doing it after what three or four years or maybe a little yeah bit I would say about four years it took about four years to find some balance yeah. but companies always evolving and you know it's not as simple as just the company it's also where you are in your personal life it's um, mm-hmm. where you know what your partners want to do it's not just my decision it's um, my partner's decision too how much time they want to put in what other things yeah. they have going on. Um, so, you know, there's never, it's never really going to be stable because so many different circumstances can change. You know, they, they might put out a new music floor next week that might destabilize the whole company, or mm-hmm. we might lose a big artist that was 50% of our revenue. So we're always evolving. And I think, I think, you know, as a business owner, you have to be prepared to completely break it all down and rebuild it, mm-hmm. um, or just break it all down and end it. Um, I think there's this sort of attachment to uh, this sort of failure mentality where people think like, oh, if I end this company or if I stop or if I let go of this person, everyone's gonna think that's terrible. No one cares, you know, like this is all about your, your enjoyment as well. You know, you yeah. have to have fun with it. When it, get, when it starts getting stressful or it, it, you feel like you're not getting paid enough or it's too much work, you really have to sit and ask yourself if you even want to do this and why you got into this and if those reasons are still the same, if you're still at that point in your life where you can even handle the work. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I always say, you know, much to the horror of all my partners, like, you know, I'm quite happy to walk away right now if, if that's the best thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not emotionally attached uh, to any of my businesses, you know, I always want to put my sort of mental health um, and life first. Yeah. Um, you know, and life isn't just about working nonstop and 
and earning money it's that's you know it's that, that's the last thing you should be thinking about. well it, it, sh- it should be about wanting to work as opposed to having to i guess yeah and i think also just accept that things come in cycles you know the, there will be good times and bad times there will be stages in your life where you have time to work and stages in your life where you don't mm-hmm. um and be okay with the change that comes with that and not be scared of it because it's you know at the end of the day like there's been ups and downs in all my companies been ups and downs in my life and um it, it's all balanced out mainly because i just didn't freak out when when something happened yeah. i just sort of uh, rode with it you know i just rolled with the punches and and saw what happened and if i was in a good place at the end great and if i wasn't well then i just i'm, I'm quite happy to to end things um uh, the pandemic's really interesting actually because i think the pandemic gave everyone that exact time to self-reflect just because there wasn't that much work going on. Um, and, and, and the pandemic um, couldn't have come at a better time for, for Protégé the school because um, 2019, uh, when we were talking about it, it was actually going to be a physical school um, okay. in, in London. That was the, the plan. We were going to be looking at renting a space and buying a bunch of computers and all that business. And then the pandemic happened and we were like, well, we can't do that. So we're going to have to turn it into a digital school. And actually that was the best decision that we ever made because we have a global school now. We have, you know, students in India and, mm-hmm. um, you know, Australia and um, way less maintenance um, doing it digitally. Um, much easier to speak to everyone over Zoom and you can actually listen to music together. Yeah. Um, so the pandemic was a blessing for, for, for Protégé. And, you know, the movie, the movie business to just sort of hit the brakes completely. Um, you know, there was a lot of redundancies in, in the sync world. Um, I just, my priority was literally just to make sure everyone was employed. Um, I just didn't want to lay anyone off or mm-hmm. cut wages. So that was my number one priority. I just m- make sure that we, uh, you know, tragedies happen. How are we going to ride it? Um, so one of the reasons I started the brewery, weirdly, was because I was going through um, my expenses over the last few years. Um, and I was trying to cut uh, corners so that I could pay my staff. You know, no, none of our staff got a pay cut. No one got hours cut. Um, we actually, we took that downtime and we just produced more music. That was the plan. Just right. churn more music out. Um, because we're normally too busy to make that, you know, that volume. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was going through my expenses and I found we were spending quite a lot of money on booze. Um, <laughs> Not me drinking it all. I mean, that was that that was a small amount. It was more gifting. You know, we 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 wine and dine a lot, and um, you know, if we win a job, we'll always send a bottle of something. And uh, the, the the you lose track of it. And you know, it was coming to kind of a massive amount. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, I calculated. Wait, if we just cut this entertainment budget out, um, I can keep someone hired at a full time uh, salary. So that was a no brainer for me. Um, but when I did cut that budget out, I, I thought, is there a cheaper way to replace, you know, gifting clients? Um, and then, then the, an idea I had was, oh, maybe I can make, uh, well, first I thought maybe I can bulk buy um, a, a bunch of really good quality wine or, or beer and yeah. then send it out and save money. And then it became, oh, well, if I'm going to do that, maybe I can stick the elephant logo on it um, and, and have it all branded and, um, you know, um, kill two birds with one stone and mm-hmm. sort of have a bit of merch as well. 
yeah. And then um, I started chatting with with Mark, who's, who's now my partner at the brewery. Um, at the time, he was we were designing beers, which is definitely the most fun I've had in the whole last three years. Uh, which involved us just drinking beer and and making a spreadsheet and rating all these beers. And by the end, we we designed these two beers, and and it's crazy how the universe works. But at this exact time, as uh, me trying about to pull the trigger. There's a thing called, um, uh, it's called guest brewing, where basically, sorry, contract brewing, where you go to another brewery and they brew a beer for you mm-hmm. and you just pay them, you know, the cost and the labor and uh, they make a bit of money and you don't have to buy a brewery. Um, but what happened was Mark was, was working for Crate Brewery in Hackney Wick. And at the exact time that we were about to pull the trigger, uh, he got made redundant. Uh, and that brewery closed down. So the conversation very quickly switched to, uh, how much extra is it to just buy all the kits? Um, <laughs> and because the, because the brewery who was, um, you know, had to sell off all their kit cheap, um, because they were basically solvent, um, we got to buy all the um, brew kit for next to nothing. Um, and that's the only reason the brewery exists. Um, okay. Because that freak, two freak, accident. two freak incidences. Number one, COVID, um, and, and number two, Mark getting made redundant and all that brewery equipment becoming available um, at you know next to nothing. Um, and then the third bit of freakishly good news was um, there was a really nice um, brand new um, co-working space in Hackney Wick, right next to Mark's brewery. Um, that was, you know, full of really interesting, cool, creative companies, and uh, they were working with the council to have really cheap rent. Uh, and then COVID happened, and all their contracts ran out, so all the all their tenants just didn't need an office anymore because the companies went remote. So we got a really, really big, you know, like industrial space, extremely cheap, um, with no lead time. I think like we signed a contract and we were in within three weeks. Wow. Um, so the brewery happened because of a load of accidents. And like I said, I just, I sort of just went with it. You know, I, I didn't, I didn't have any reason to not do it. Um, things weren't that busy. It was the pandemic. Um, I was a bit bored. I think I was getting a bit bored, you know, with, with life. Um, I felt like I needed a new challenge. I've always loved beer. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, I, and I think sometimes like you need to plunge yourself into the unknown. Um, One, yeah, yeah, yeah. As a result, yeah. it's helped all my businesses actually. Um, you know, I've, I've I've learned more from the brewery for sure um, than I've learned from any of my other businesses um, because it's so alien to me. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. You know, you know. The other day, I learned to like. Uh, the other day, I worked my first ever bar shift. You know, <laughs> at, at the age of thirty-eight, um, because we have a bar now, and you know, I felt like I was back at school. I felt like I was. At, just left school uh, in my gap year before uni, getting trained on a, at a bar. Um, but now I look at bars differently, and you know I I look at bar staff differently, and I look at my staff differently. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think all, all these ventures that I've started have, have just helped all the other companies. Cool. So, what is what what's next for for you and for Elephant Music, Split Music, and the brewery for the rest of this year? Um, what you got coming up that you're able to to shout about? 
Okay, well the well the brewery I can tell you a lot about. We we just opened our first bar in Leytonstone um, about six weeks ago. Uh, we're we've got DJs playing now, which is really cool. I get to hire DJs, which is something I really enjoy doing. Nice. We're about to get a live music license, so we're going to have live music in that, which will be cool. really interesting. I'm trying to open it up to the music industry and the sync industry. I want to start doing. Um, I discussed sync drinks east, um, <laughs> like a sort of mini. <laughs> mini sync drinks and um and there's been a few other organizations that have been talking about doing their annual parties there or christmas parties there cool got loads of new beers coming which is great um for the school um and actually to be honest for the school for elephant and for split uh, it's been a real turbulent few years my actual aim is to have the most stable year um yeah. almost the most boring year I, I want i want a year of no surprises and uh, just everyone cruises through their job stress-free um and to be honest with with elephant music something quite exciting is 2022 is just the year of increasing and improving quality so um we're recording our first album at abbey road on um the 9th of june uh, which is going to be exciting and cool. And we're planning on doing loads of um, live recorded albums um, going forward, probably going to mm -hmm. be exclusively live recording everything. Um, <clears throat> split music, again, a nice, stable, easy year. Um, you know, we're still trying to trim some of the fat off the catalogue. Um, we want to get to a stage where we get to a point where we say, okay, this is the catalogue. Mm -hmm. This is the catalogue now that we want to... Uh, we'll work with for the next three years and then just service that catalogue the best we can. Um, that's it really. I, I, I think I've got to the stage now where I'm definitely at maximum capacity um, and I'm just trying to build stronger foundations so that if there is another pandemic or another disaster, um, we're stable enough to survive it. Cool. And as a non-drinker now, when is mammoth low alcohol coming it's out. coming in january so um we're we're aiming to launch it for dry jan oh nice i see what you did there <laughs> but we do have blatant plug coming here we do have a whole shelf of uh non-alcoholic beers um in the, in the brewery in the tap room um from this brilliant um brewery called mash gang i don't know if you've heard of them i haven't um heard. You should check them out. They only do non-alcoholic beers. I will. Um, and they're really, really good. So we have I've, a big I've range. Been a, I've been, I've been a non-drinker for, I think, four years now. So I've kind of become a little bit of a connoisseur of, of, of non-alcoholic beers. And it, I can get a bit snooty about some of them. So <laughs> I, like, I like it when I see prop, you know, full-on brewers that just focus on, on making, that, making it better. Right? Yeah, there's two breweries I know of a shit version of, of the normal one. No, not at all. There's one, there's a couple that I regularly drink just because I like the taste. Um, there's another brewery called Nirvana Brewery that's um, okay. actually really, really close to my house. They just do non-alcoholic non too. And I, I, I think it's a really positive move um, because sometimes people just want to drink beer because they want to drink beer. They don't actually want to get drunk at all. But culturally, that's not acceptable. And I think that's changing. I think that's really healthy. Mm nice one Vic thank you very much for chatting to me today we got there in the end we did I had a lot of fun
massive thank you to Vic there for having a chat with me. Uh, as I mentioned at the start, uh, it took a while for us to pin down a date. Uh, the man is a very, very busy person when you've got four or five companies that you're running at any given time. Your free time, your time to devote to podcasts is uh, limited. So really, really appreciate Vic uh, giving me the time in a pretty busy day, actually, when we t- when we spoke. Um, it was really, really great to catch up. Um, if you're interested in any of the businesses that Vic, uh, that Vic runs, uh, find them online, elephantmusic.net, splitmusic.co.uk, protege.school and mammothbeer.com. Uh, the other two non-alcoholic beer companies that we spoke about at the end, uh, mashgang.shop and nirvanabrewery.com. Also find all of his companies on Instagram at elephant underscore music, at split music, at protege school underscore, at mammoth beer and at mammoth tap room. Uh, as always, massive thank you to Bloompool for providing the music. Uh, if you're interested in finding him, go to bloom.pool on Instagram or bloom slash pool on Spotify. You can also find his curated playlist, Moonlight Sessions, on Spotify as well. If you'd like to reach out to me and ask me a question or if you've got some music that you'd like me to listen to or anything in between please do get in touch go to my website dcmusicpublishing.co.uk contact details are there also find me on instagram at dcmusicpublishing and find me on facebook at dcmusicbusiness thank you very much for listening Uh, there's still episodes to come this year so keep one eye out for them Uh, until then i will speak to you very very soon